Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out newdealleaders.org to see what I'm talking about. As we celebrate Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, we thought it's a perfect time to introduce you to one of the rising stars in the Democratic Party and a brand new New Dealer, Massachusetts Representative Trom Nguyen. Trom and I talk about her life. From just trying to survive her first Massachusetts winter as a five-year-old immigrant from Vietnam, to her race and winning a seat in the Massachusetts legislature. She's a public interest lawyer who took on an eight-year incumbent, a conservative Republican, and won both in 2018 and then was reelected in 2020. In the legislature, she's leading an effort to update hate crime legislation to address the increase in violence against Asian Americans and other communities. She's also fighting for economic opportunity and helping survivors of domestic violence. She's the right leader at the right time for her community. Enjoy. Representative Trom Nguyen, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you. Thank you so much, Ryan, for having me on the show. Really great to be speaking with a fellow New Dealer. Happy to do it. I want to start with your a little bit just about your life and then eventually your path into public service. Can you tell the listeners about your experience as a first-generation Vietnamese-American? Absolutely. So I came to the United States when I was five years old with my family as political refugees in the early 90s. My father served in the South Vietnamese military alongside U.S. soldiers. So when the communists took over, he was forced into a re-education camp for over eight years. And so in the early 90s, we were lucky enough to be able to come over to uh, Massachusetts, to the Merrimack Valley, where I live now, uh, with really less than $100 to our name. And my parents had to work two to three jobs to make ends meet and provide for myself and my younger sisters. And seeing their resilience and seeing all the hard work they had to uh, to put in really inspired me to get into the field of public service. And I was a legal services attorney prior to getting elected, working with a lot of different clients from vulnerable communities, including people with disabilities, seniors, veterans, uh, survivors of domestic violence, and new immigrants. And in doing that work, not only did I represent them in the courtroom, but I also represented them and their interests on different policies, including paid family medical leave, or they income tax credit, protections for survivors of domestic violence, et cetera. And in doing that work, I realized how much of an impact policy can have on the daily lives of people, especially the people who need the most help. And at the time, I realized that my representative really not only don't care about these issues, but actively oppose them, you know, as a far right Tea Party Republican, really don't uh, share a lot of the same priorities that I do. And I realized that I could 
run for office and work on these issues from the legislative side and make positive changes for the community to build a more welcoming and inclusive community where people can work, play, raise a family and not feeling as though they have to be fearful. And that's really has been my priority since I've been in office. And I want to talk about that extraordinary race that you engaged in to flip that seat. First, can we talk a little bit about how your family's experience with government obviously was profoundly impacted by U.S. foreign policy, but as a child, immigrating and then integrating into into life, how did government shape that experience in positive and, and negative ways? Well, I have to say that I, I appreciate the question so much because I have been thinking about this for a long time because policy impacted my father's experience in Vietnam, but also policy, federal policy was the reason that we're here today, right? And through the humanitarian operation uh, executive order that brought us to the U.S. And so uh, this conflict has remained uh somewhat of uh, an intriguing thing to me. And I've been thinking through that a lot. And as someone who came here with very little resources, we've relied on community resources extensively. And I want to make sure that those resources remain available to others who come after us. So back in the day, you know, we lived in public housing, we received public benefits, and that was how my parents were able to make a life for us here, to buy their first home in five to six years after arriving in this country. And that's not possible anymore, given how policies have changed so much. And so this is why I continue to think about how we can make these things available and accessible to people, uh, whether it's, you know, giving them the opportunity to graduate from college, like I was the first in my family to graduate from college, to allow people to be first-time home buyers within a certain period of time after they've arrived in this country, rather than now we're seeing the, you know, skyrocketing price of housing and who knows how people could afford to buy their own homes, et cetera, and, you know, uh, and start their, their families. And so all of these things really impact how I look at policy and how I uh, want to make sure that we are taking into account the voices that are often not heard and looking after the people who need it most. How did your family pick the Merrimack Valley? And I can't imagine the difference in weather must have been profound, <laughs> but how did they choose that area? So I have to say, uh, I we arrived in the January of 1992, and so you can imagine the the shock of coming here right in the middle of winter. I was five years old at the time, like I said, and I just remember vividly seeing snow for the first time and how shocking that was. And, and it is not by accident that we arrived here. A couple of things. First of all, we were going to immigrate to Canada because my dad's oldest sister lived in Montreal and she was petitioning for our family to come over. And then we got the notification of the HO program. And so my dad decided to come to the United States and said, if he chose Massachusetts, believe it or not, because of all the great schools here, and so his intention was like, you're going to go to Harvard, you're going to, uh, you're going to become a doctor, and that's what's going to happen. And that's why he chose this area. And, uh, and also, Massachusetts is known for its public school system. And so my dad somehow did all this research. And I'm really just thrilled that we came to this area where we got just so much community support. We immigrated to Lawrence, Massachusetts. And for those who aren't familiar, that really is a hub of immigration, one of the hubs of immigration here in the Commonwealth, where we have immigrants coming from all across the globe and we 
were really just so lucky in that we had a supportive, a great support system here to allow uh, my sister and uh, my sisters and I to thrive and for my family to thrive and to get to where we are today. Sticking with the Merrimack Valley, you know, one of the things I think a lot of us, especially those who are far away, think of Massachusetts and they think of Boston and and Cambridge and Harvard and MIT, you're in an area that has struggled economically and and relies on immigration for some economic vitality. Can you talk about sort of how your region is doing right now and then what you do in the state house to try to assist with the challenges that, that, that it faces? So we, the Merrimack Valley, I think that we're not a monolith for sure. There are towns uh, like the towns that I represent, Andover, Boxford, Tewksbury, and North Andover, where they're doing relatively well. But then right next door to us is a gateway city, Lawrence. Like I said, I lived there when as I was growing up, and then I, my family moved to Methuen, another gateway city right next door. And uh, you can see the disparities. And in not only during this pandemic, but We've seen the disparity even beforehand, and the pandemic has only exacerbated the difference. So right now, we're very intentional about looking at the different impacts that the pandemic has had on very different communities here in this area. And what we've seen really is a focus on getting people back to work, making sure that we are looking at unemployment and making it as accessible as possible to people, especially low-income folks, and making sure that we are getting the information out there, not only in English, but in other languages that are better, uh, more accessible to people. And additionally, we have to also look at how the information about the pandemic is being distributed to the community and making sure it's disseminated in a way that is accessible to the people, whether it is through ethnic media or talking to community leaders who can convey the importance of of testing, of getting vaccinated, of and addressing the vaccine hesitancy that we're seeing in many communities of color. And so all of, all of these efforts really require an intentionality, but also an investment in money into these various sources to make sure that people are getting the information that they need so that we not only recover from the pandemic, but also thrive. I want to go back because I think this all ties together. I want to go back to that race in 2018 when you challenged a Republican, a conservative Republican incumbent, and you're a first time office holder. Can you talk a little bit about that race and sort of both your experience, but also what it says about the changing nature and needs of a community? Absolutely. I I am very lucky. I have to say that I'm just so honored to be in this position as a first-time office holder, as a first-time candidate. I really was the underdog in the race, and I think most people did not think I had a chance. I have to say I, in the beginning, also didn't think I had much of a chance, but I was very lucky in that I had a, well, have a great group of folks in my corner who continue to encourage me to pursue this and who have been there for me since the very beginning. I know you probably heard of the statistic that, you know, for women, you have to be asked seven times before they would even consider running for office. And for women of color, particularly, I think most of us don't even get asked. So I was very honored to be asked to run for this seat. And to be frank, I never thought I was ever going to run for office. But the circumstances were that he would have 
been unopposed if I hadn't decided to run. And Bashar that broke the camel's back in addition to what I alluded to earlier about him not supporting the policies that I was advocating for, but he proposed an amendment to allow police officers to stop anyone who looks illegal, which is basically legalizing racial profiling against people who look like me as a person of color. And I just could not allow that to happen. I could not allow someone like that to continue to represent this district and make it that unwelcoming place where people don't feel safe. And so my priority since I've been in office is to build on making this district, the 18th Essex district, a more welcoming and inclusive place that takes into account voices that have not been heard before. And I have been successful at advocating for progressive policies in what is a very purple district because I flipped this from a far-righting party Republican, and of course there are conservative constituents out there, but we have been able to um, successfully win, you know, my second race this past year with a 65% margin because I have shown the people that I can get things done. I'm the very first Vietnamese American woman to ever hold elected office in the state and frankly, the very first personal color to ever represent this district. So I have to prove over and over to people that I am very competent and that I'm very capable and that I can get things done and bring home the bacon. Essentially, we, uh, in the last three years, have been able to bring back over $400,000 in earmarks or, you know, specific funding for the district, for the four towns in the district, in addition to the fact that three of my bills have already been signed into law, was the former representative has been in office for eight years and had never passed the bill and frankly, most of the time voted against the state budget. And so it's just that the diligence and the ability of not just myself, but my office to be out there to respond to the people, particularly during this pandemic has really made a difference and has shown to the people that we are there to serve them. Can you, I mean, imagine, I imagine that there are many 30-year-olds who are out there listening to this podcast and are thinking about perhaps long-term incumbents that are perhaps running unopposed and are not, in their view, not serving their community or their districts well. How did you, I mean, how did you, how did you win, right? Like, uh, how did you get from sort of challenging an incumbent who no one else wanted to run against to being elected and representing that district? I have to give full credit to my family and to my supporters and to community members who all pitched in to make this happen. And I tell them all the time that I would not be here without everyone really pitching in. And I feel very privileged that I was able to, first of all, I took seven months off out of my job to run full time because I worked for a nonprofit and we get state funding. So there would have been a conflict. So I couldn't have continued in my job and run for office at the same time. And so I was able to take the seven months off because I have a very supportive family who are able to support me financially. So that truly is a privilege that I recognize, but also the, the amazing team that got me to where I am today. Everyone worked so hard. We were able to door knock the district twice before get out the vote and really introduced me to to people all across the four towns. And my team were just phenomenal in making sure that I need to be where I need to be to meet people. And we had to fundraise an extraordinary amount because taking on an incumbent, unfortunately, you know, money plays a big role in politics. And it took a lot of 
mailing and mailers and uh, palm cards and so many other things for us to even get people to pay attention. And so with great team and a very supportive family and just wonderful volunteers from not only the district, but across the state, because the incumbent had been there for eight years and really took very questionable stances on a lot of different policy areas, including didn't support lifting kids out of poverty, or he didn't, he was completely anti-choice. He was, I don't know if he believes in climate change, for instance. And so all of these policy areas that I've been passionate about really resonated with the people. And we were able to get that message out there to folks. And I was thrilled to to win with a 55% margin. And as a young... Well, 10% margin, that's just... 10% margin, it wasn't 55% of the vote. A win is a win, and especially to flip a district uh, from, from against an eight-year incumbent, it's a remarkable achievement. Did you face resistance or outright uh, hostility as a young woman of color running for office? Absolutely. I, I think that we all have war stories to tell right, from our time in office, or running for office, rather. And the difficulty of running in 2018 was that that was when there's all this rhetoric about what immigrants are or should be. And as an immigrant myself, I constantly had to find my, I found myself defending myself as an immigrant. We remember back, you know, I'm sure you remember back then, immigrants were labeled as freeloaders and criminals. And it's the rhetoric started with the former president, but my opponent was I'm happy to perpetuate that as well. And the irony is I will match my work ethic against his any time. And so, as I mentioned, we worked very hard and we proved people wrong. We had to continue to prove people that I am capable, that, you know, I have the experience and I have the ability to get things done. And for me, at the time, I was in my early 30s. I looked very I still look much younger than my age too. So I constantly have to battle not only the people not ever seeing a person of color being in this position, but also a young person in this position and a woman of color. So there are all these barriers uh, and hurdles that had to to get through, but uh, we were able to cut through them because we found that there's nothing um, that beats being in front of people to explain to them my vision for this district and it resonated with the people. And as as our nation has faced a reckoning over racial injustice over the last couple of years, most recently and unfortunately, we've begun to reckon with discrimination against Asian Americans. And I'm wondering from your from your firsthand experience, both as an immigrant and growing up in the United States, and then also as, as a woman seeking, seeking an office. How do you think we approach this? Are there solutions? Are there legislative solutions? Is it an enforcement? Is it cultural? Is it a combination of all three? How do we begin to, to address this issue? So first, I want to say that we have seen an increase, a uh, 150% increase uh, from the latest poll uh, through Stop AAPI hate of anti-Asian hate and discrimination uh, since the start of the pandemic because of all the misinformation and scapegoating that started with the uh, former president and basically enabled other leaders to continue the scapegoating to essentially put a target in the backs of uh, people of Asian descent. And all of that culminated in the Atlanta shooting that happened in this past March that resulted in eight deaths, six of whom are women of Asian descent. That's to say that it didn't start with 
that and it's not going to end with that because we all know that there is a long and troubling history of racism in America against Asians for years and years and years. It, it didn't just start with the pandemic, right? We had the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act. We had the Chinese Massacre. We had the Japanese internment camps. We had the death of Vincent Chin, who was targeted by uh, disgruntled auto workers who were angry at you know, Japan for essentially affecting the auto industry here. But Vincent Chin was a Chinese man and they did not care and targeted him and really faced no consequences. So this is just a few examples of all that we faced in terms of anti-Asian racism through the years. And with the rise in anti-Asian violence now, we need to continue to remind people that it is systemic, that there needs to be a multi-pronged approach. And so some of the things that we're looking to do, and I'm actually really thrilled that just this week, President Biden has signed into law the COVID Hate Crimes Act that was led by Senator Hirono and Congresswoman Meng to better define hate crimes and essentially establish a particular role in the Department of Justice to look at hate crimes and to see how we could better address it. And But that's just the start. So for many of us in um, the Commonwealth included and across the country, there have been efforts to essentially rework our hate crimes laws to better hold perpetrators of hate crimes more accountable, particularly in our state. I've been working with Attorney General Maura Healy as well as Senator Adam Hines on a hate crimes bill to better define hate crimes, rework the statute to hold perpetrator accountable, but also expand the protected class to include immigration status and gender to meet the moment when we're seeing increased xenophobia and gender-based violence. Additionally, the bill would also rework the penalty so that it better fits the underlying crime and enhance penalties for repeat offenders because we truly believe that hate crimes are not just committed against the individual, they're meant to terrorize whole communities. I have never seen this level of fear um, in recent years. Like, I mean, the last time that uh, this happened was during, um, after 9-11, where many of our South Asian community members were living in fear. But we're seeing older folks and women being targeted and beaten all across the country. And in fact, the Boston Globe did an article recently where they interviewed my father, who was very active. He was playing tennis and he was constantly out and about uh, prior to the pandemic. And now he's afraid to leave because he thinks that he's going to be attacked. He's going to die. And so this level of fear is something we need to address and we need to send a clear message that such hate and violence is not tolerated here in the Commonwealth or anywhere. And that's why it's so important to hold perpetrators accountable. But in addition to that, that doesn't get to the root of hate and violence. We need to work on uh, racial and social and economic justice to make sure that we help these communities so they're less marginalized, so that they're less susceptible to the, uh, to uh, being victimized. And uh, we also need to work on K-12 education, for instance, because we all know that hate is learned. You aren't born hating people. You learn these things. And how do we uh, incorporate and rework uh, the framework that we're teaching in schools to make sure that we not only celebrate different histories, but also celebrate the contributions of people of color, of diverse folks, their authors, and making sure that kids understand that there is a wealth of contributions made by many different people to the fabric of our country and that 
we want to have our kids have a full understanding of history very early on rather than waiting to, you know, maybe get to college and take a, a race equity class or something like that, which for me, I, my very first exposure was a race in America class uh, when I was uh, uh, first year at, uh, at Tufts. And that really is too late. We, we should be teaching them uh, much earlier on. But we also need to support community-based organizations as well. It's not just about holding perpetrators accountable, but what resources are we providing to victims? And how do we encourage people to report hate crimes and incidents? Because you know there's a lack of data too. So data collection is a big piece. And speaking of data, we also need to talk about disaggregated data because Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, we're not a monolith. There are many groups, ethnic groups, and depending on our immigration history or when we came to this country and many other factors, different ethnic groups, they're differently in this country. I mean, we have a lot of folks who are very well to do. So when you look at the data as an aggregate, you'll see that Asian Americans perhaps you know, are graduating at a very high rate, uh, graduating from college and high school at a high rate or making a lot of money, but that's not across the board. I can say that for Vietnamese Americans, because I know this community well, over 50 something percent of us are limited English proficient and a very high percentage of us are living in poverty. And that's the same for many other groups, including Cambodian Americans and the ocean, et cetera. And so we need to talk about what resources different communities need and how we could essentially work on policies that don't leave any of these community groups behind. That's so well said. And you captured so many different elements of the challenge and opportunity in that, in, in your description. And I'm sorry, I'm so sorry that your father, after all he's gone through and all he's achieved, now has to experience this in, in America. Is It's heartbreaking. Can you talk a little bit about how you see, when you see a need, like increasing hate crimes, and then you want to develop legislation, like how do you do that? How do you take it from a need to an idea to a bill to a law? And then how how likely is it that, that you're going to be able to get it enacted this year? The key is relationships. The key is building coalition. The key is working with people and listening to them and listening to their needs and incorporating in feedback from folks. So none of these policies are, exist in a vacuum, right? So many times, and I I know that I'm only speaking for Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I know each legislature functions very differently, but for us, we're a full-time legislature. So, and also in our constitution, we all have the right to file as many bills as we want. And in fact, citizens also have the right to file as many bills as they want, you know, with the help of their legislators. So we end up with anywhere from 6,500 to 8,000 bills each session and our sessions are two-year sessions. So there are a lot to work with. And what we need to do is really, when you propose a bill, you need to build a coalition so that it percolates to the top. And you have to have many conversations, not only inside the building and me talking to my colleagues to get them to sign on to the bill or talking to leadership to answer any questions or concerns that they may have. We also need people on the outside, advocates on the outside to help push these bills. And in fact, the hate crimes bill is actually a perfect example. We filed this bill before the Atlanta shooting. So we filed this back in February. And since Atlanta shooting, it has really gotten uh, highlighted in the media and elsewhere. And so people have started paying attention to it. And from what we learned in Atlanta, we have gotten feedback of how we could better enhance the bill and improve on the bill so that we can have a more comprehensive bill. And so it's 
an ongoing process. We are going to continue to talk to advocacy groups, hear what they have to say, and in perhaps make and incorporate changes so that we can get the best bill possible out of committee. And so all of this takes a lot of time and work, but we're committed to doing that. And we're also uh, very open to feedback. And I think that's key too. The more people you can bring in, the better chance a bill has of getting passed. All right. Well, we will uh, keep an eye on and our fingers crossed that you can get that uh, bill across the line to address, you know, a, a fundamental issue that we're seeing across the country. And hopefully your bill is so well done that it's a model that other states can implement as well. Absolutely. And I want to add, too, that we filed this bill early on in the year, and it's not only in response to anti-Asian hate and violence, but also responding a rise in hate crimes overall. We've seen a rise in hate crimes against people in the LGBTQ community, against people with disabilities, against the Jewish community, for instance. And so that's how we're looking to build coalition is to expand this out and talk to all of these community groups and to see what we can do together to address that hate and violence and make sure that we are taking into account the bias motivation and how do we work together to to counter that. I'm excited to see the the final product and it's great that you're building a bigger coalition and and bringing bringing a lot of different groups that may not always work together together to see their common interests and and hopefully common solutions. I want to get your advice as as the Democratic Party prepares to head into midterm elections. I think there's a lot of concern and angst about losing purple districts, but you were you you got as we mentioned, you got elected in 2018 and you got reelected in 2020. Do you have any advice for the party as candidates start to think about reelection next year and and how the party can hold or expand in these in these purple areas? Absolutely. I think it is vital that we develop better messaging that are authentic to us. We cannot let the opposition dictate what is center in each of these races. So, for instance, in my race, they were trying to put out all of this crazy rhetoric, for lack of a better term, about how I am a radical and I just... I uh, want to commit infanticide because I'm pro-choice and how I want to allow criminals to run free because I believe that we should enable every single person to report crimes and turn to the police. And we saw how important that is during the pandemic that people trust the system and actually turn to the system for help. And so we ignored that rhetoric. We put out our own and we doubled down on uh, where I stood on things. And I, and I think that that helped because we cannot be wishy-washy. Let's <laughs> just say that. You cannot win both sides. You have to stick to your messaging and uh, find ways to take in your experience and tell your story and let people know why you stand for these issues. And I think that now with social media and everything, giving people more access to the candidates, like telling your story and being your authentic self really goes a long way. I think that's good advice. And it's actually, I, it's not that hard, right? It's, it's, it doesn't take a sophisticated strategy. It just takes people being authentic and honest and communicating clearly why they believe what it is and why they think it's best for their communities. It's, it's uh, let's hope, so people listen and and do and then also achieve the success you've had. 
Representative Wynn, I want to just thank you for both your service and for your inspiration. And we're so excited to have you as part of New Deal. I think you're, you're a tremendous asset, not only to your community and state, but now to a new network of leaders who will be looking to you for models for legislation and leadership. And I, I can't wait to meet you in person. Uh, the same here. Likewise, I am just so thrilled to be a part of this amazing network of people who are committing to making positive changes in our country. And I look forward to meeting each and every single one of you and learning from you. There's just so many lessons learned from this pandemic. And I think that we all have a lot to share with one another. And I look forward to um, having that opportunity for us to work together and collaborate in ways that would bring positive changes to folks uh, across the, the nation. So thank you for having me on the show and giving me this opportunity to let more about me and please in touch and I'd love to connect with you all. Definitely if you're interested, please reach out anytime. Thank you and I hope to see you hope to see you soon. Take care. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to an honorable profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Oh,